Support this podcast and keep us going. Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join up. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1042. Today we hear from Kane, who we haven't heard from in a while. Welcome back, Kane. Kane asks, I'd be very interested in hearing your thoughts regarding the following fascinating theories, all in good world-building sort of fun that writers have. In order of fascination to me, the ancient astronaut theory, so what? So we're, this is going to be two episodes. We're going to do the ancient astronaut theory first, and then we'll do another episode on his other theory. So, here's his description of the ancient astronaut theory. Ancient astronaut theory, that advanced extraterrestrials discovered this planet full of resources and no indigenous intelligent life up to the task of developing a sophisticated society, so they played some part in our evolution for whatever reason, possibly slave labor to mine Earth, but the reason doesn't really matter. The evolutionary act taken by the extraterrestrials is in fact what the Earth scholars call the missing link. As an addendum, that Bigfoot is actually the modern evolved cousin of the Gigantopithecus, the only creature indigenous to Earth that ever resembled anything like a human before the ancient astronauts came here. Evidence all over the planet, much from the same time period between societies that didn't even know of each other's existence, of hybrid snake people, flying dragons, the firebirds, and in the case of the Mayans, carvings of what really truly looks like people in belted strapped equipment carrying spacesuits climbing into the cockpits. Climbing into cockpits. So basically Stargate? Uh, Stargate was based on the ancient astronaut theory. Um, the ancient astronaut theory was propounded by Eric Von Dannegan in his book The Chariots of the Gods, which was a ripoff of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, but, um, but done as a serious scientific type of book. Um... The ancient astronaut theory is fun, and that's about as far as it goes. The um, the reason that scholars don't get all, or that like archaeological scholars don't get all worked up about the weird glyphs that seem to show spaceships is that they're showing things that we see all through mythology. Thing, things that can be interpreted as spaceships now by an accident of the style of the spacesuits in the 1960s forward of the design of spacesuits. But uh, we're talking it, we're talking sun god motifs, big round things over the heads and that sort of thing. It shows up as the halo in um, Catholic iconography, but it's the the halo is the disk of the sun. It indicates that the character is a sun god or is the disciple or the representative of a sun god. There was another particular thing with regards to Mayan iconography that I don't remember because I haven't looked at it in years and years and years and years since back when I read Chariots of the Gods in like 2005 and then read all the, uh, went and looked at all the archaeological stuff that he was badly citing. As a, as a, a science fictional theory or a science fictional idea, it's generated a lot of 
really fun stories, like the Stargate series and the movie before it, which I liked a lot better. Um, like the um, entire premise, Battlestar Galactica, the original series back in 1977, is basically Chariots of the Gods meets the Book of Mormon. Um, the Book of Mormon also, of course, being a weird sort of sideways source for Chariots of the Gods. But anyway, um, the ancient the Chariots of the Gods and that whole idea only makes sense if you look at ancient civilizations through the lens of a modern person who knows nothing about ancient civilizations <laughs> and only knows about modern ones. We know why the iconography was the way it, it was the way it was and was distributed so widely. It's because ancient peoples timed everything by the sun and the stars. They had to, because that told them when the seasons were coming, and in a temperate climate, which is the only place agriculture ever arises, is in a temperate climate. Doesn't Agriculture does not arise in the tropics, because tropical agriculture is way too difficult to be worth bothering with. Tropical animal agriculture you can kind of do, but tropical plant agriculture? Why bother? You've got fruit dripping off the trees all the time. And tropical soils are notoriously poor, and tropical weather is really good for pests and really bad for crops. So you don't do agri in the tropics if you can help it. And what agriculture does happen in, in the tropics tends to be um, basically permaculture. And yeah. it, it's moving plants from an inconvenient location to a convenient location. Right. And that sort of thing, so that you can gather and forage more easily. Yep. But... Agriculture arises in temperate zones. And in the temperate zones, if you want to be able to have a harvest, you have to know in advance when to plant your crops, which means you have to study the stars. You have to study the movement of the planets through the zodiac, the movement of the sun especially through the zodiac, and the axial tilt of the earth as marked by the shifting of the angle of the sunset over the course of the year. This is why agricultural civilizations across the ancient world from northern Ireland all the way across to to northern Indonesia very predictably developed sun god rain god moon goddess earth goddess um, because everything that made their society function was based on timing fertility so a lot of the iconography that looks astral comes up around solar mythology and the related fertility rites. That which does not. Images like the chimeras, and uh, which is uh, not just the classical chimera, but any chimeric creature, the hybrid of a human plus an animal. Hmm. Those come from animistic animal worship, where the animals are seen to be embodying the spirit of a god. And especially, this is especially true of animals you keep for agriculture, and animals that are associated with death, and animals that are associated with fear. So snakes, for example, throughout the ancient world, they're associated with fear and wisdom, and also deceit which is interesting, and it varies. It, it, the inflection on wisdom varies a little bit by culture. And the Hebrews saw the snake as deceitful because the snake is always crawling around and hiding and being very furtive. The Hindus and the Celts and also the Hebrews 
saw the snake as a source of wisdom and healing. And you can see this in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, where they set up a... Um, it, it's whitewashed so that it's just a symbol, but it's what they're describing in the symbol is a caduceus. It's, a, it's an idol to the god Serapis that heals the Israelites in the desert of a plague of boils, I think it was. They set the caduceus up in the camp near the tabernacle, and the Hebrews go and they ritually do their thing before it, and they're cured. That's a remnant of the time before Judaism was monotheistic. It was what's called henotheistic, which is a version of polytheism which holds that our tribal god is the most high god, and the other gods are all his servants but they're real. And so we can have uh, relations with them when our God approves. So that's why that's in there. So this, and the reason the snake is associated with wisdom and healing, even though the snake, even though snakes, especially the ones that people really freak out about, are venomous, is because snakes shed their skins. So they're reborn. They're immortal. They, ha they have the wellspring of health. So all of the things that are common to all of the ancient mythologies, they all unfortunately come from very mundane sources. And the, the sorts of st weird stuff you see in the, you know, in the sky, well, we're talking people who lived and died by the stars, which is why comets, a change in the eternal sky that kept everything, were seen as symbols of death and of change, and why when they showed up, oh boy, do they show up in the iconography, because the existence of a comet in the sky is screwing with everybody's conception of how the universe works. And asteroids coming down, shooting stars, those are celestial events the gods are fighting, or they're warning us of portentous things coming in the future, or they're announcing the birth of a god-man, or of a prophet, or something important like that. Everything c comes back to the relationships between humans and the seasons, humans and animals, and it's all mediated through the stars. And, uh, and also through drugs. A lot of the chimeric <laughs> stuff has to come from drugs. Um, drugs played an incredibly important part in all ancient religions, including Judaism. There's recipes in the Bible for concoctions of hallucinogens to help you see God. I mean, and of course, the book of Revelation, as astrologically... By the way, to understand the book of Revelation, if you ever have been around... Um, evangelicals and fundamentalists and you've heard the whole left behind thing forget all that stuff has nothing that that is an attempt by 19th century german pietism imported into middle america to try to make rational sense of the book of revelation without having access to all the stuff the catholics know about what the history and context of the book of Revelation is. What the book of Revelation is, is a coded revolutionary document written in astrological language under the influence of mushrooms. I, I can't say we know it was written under the influence of mushrooms, because we don't. But the reason that I and a lot of weirdos like me think it was likely that it was written under the influence of mushrooms is that the imagery that it contains that is not classic astrological stuff is common to mushroom dreams that we know are mushroom dreams documented in uh, around the same time and in the same area. And Patmos was known to be a place where people went to get high on mushrooms. 
So, and Patmos is where the book of Revelation was written. But the astrological stuff, by, by the astrological stuff, I'm not saying that it's all divining and, you know, it, it's witchcraft about... No, I'm saying that he's using astrological imagery, which was one of the lingua franca of symbolism in the ancient Roman world. He's using astrological imagery to describe, prophesy, and advocate for the downfall of Rome at the hands of the Christians. It's a revolutionary document that's written in coded language so that it won't get the people reading it killed. Um, all the way down to the number of the beast being 666 or 616 in some ancient manuscripts. Well, they both translate to Neron Kaiser, Nero Caesar. The, the beast of Revelation is Nero, who was persecuting the Christians. So, anyway... Big, long, but the the, um, the digression, and I'm, I hope you will forgive me the digression, is to explain how badly moderns misunderstand the ancient world because we have no visceral connection to it anymore. It's not just that we've stopped retelling the stories. It's that most of us live in cities. We don't even see the stars. And the idea that we would need to pay attention to what's going on up there in order to have a prayer of surviving down here seems a little bizarre to us because we've got calendars. And grocery stores. And grocery stores. And most of us are not connected to producing food. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us aren't even connected to, to cooking our own food. But before farmers used calendars in, you know, that were put out by central authorities, and this was only 100 years ago, guys, 150 years ago now, before people used calendars and almanacs as the only thing, well, before people used calendars, they used almanacs. And before they used almanacs, they used stories to remind them what to look for in the sky so that they would know what time of year it was and when to plant the whole reason the Copernican Revolution happened, that's when uh, Copernicus discovered that the Earth was not at the center of the solar system, the whole reason that happened was that the math for figuring out what the calendar was going to be like with the Earth at the center of the solar system wasn't working very well, and they were getting days and days of drift every year. And that was throwing off the farmers who needed to plant the crops. And it was also, very importantly for the Catholic Church, throwing off the sacred calendar. The Catholic Church has a liturgical calendar. Every major um, event of the year, ma major astronomical event of the year, the first day of winter, the first day of spring, the equinoxes, the solstices, all the cues that you need to run an agricultural society, the Catholic Church had rituals, and uh, either ritual feasts or ritual um, masses or ritual fasts set on those turning point days around the calendar. And they were drifting, and you were jeopardizing people's eternal souls by having, thing, by having liturgical drift so that people were conducting the wrong rituals on the wrong days. And so the Catholic Church spent gobs of money. They just threw it at Copernicus, said, figure this out. And he unintentionally kicked off the Enlightenment and caused them a lot of problems. But he <laughs> fixed the calendar. And we should point out that when Dan is saying that calendars are a couple of hundred years old, He's not talking about 
having the concept of months. No, no, I'm talking about like days. the printed pamphlets that you get. Yeah. That tell you what the days the solstice and what days. Yeah. That people have actual physical calendars that that they buy and change out every year yeah. is, is a fairly new development. Yep. But having the calendar and having lights at night, between those two things, we lose all uh, visceral access to what the ancients took as baseline reality. And because of that, we can't understand why any of this stuff would ever be appealing or make the slightest bit of sense to people. So we posit things like aliens. It's a great leap of imagination based on a great and very tragic pool of ignorance. And unintentionally, it really, really makes the ancient people look stupid. And they weren't. The ancients were amazingly smart. They built all of those megalithic structures using hand tools. And over the last few weeks here, I have been moving logs up steep hills with hand tools, and I have been learning a lot of the tricks the ancients used in order to do this. And they're really clever. I'm inventing nothing. I'm just, like, reading up on how did the ancients move the stones to the pyramids? How did the Olmecs move the stones through the jungle to do the heads? How did the Easter Island people move those giant statues from the quarries down to the beaches? It's really fantastic, the kinds of very simple and ingenious things the ancients figured out. And they require great subtlety to do them right. We think of, uh, like, uh, one of the big things in the ancient aliens thing is the precision fitting of the stones in certain um, Inca and uh, other high Andean sites. Because mm -hmm. we look at those and we're like, you know, to do that today, to get that kind of finish and that kind of precision on the stone, you have to have complex geometry and you have to have diamond bladed saws or really hot lasers could probably do the same thing and you have to have computer control to get them just that <laughs> precise because that's what it takes to do it now what it took to do it then was a square a piece of string and two pieces of chalk to make a scribe from one side to the other in the same way that an auto pen in the mid 20th century would allow you to sign multiple checks at once because what an auto pen is is it's like a the, you've got a pen and it's hooked via a series of levers to six other pens and so it duplicates your movements with very little friction the ancient andean peoples invented an auto pen for scribing stones and then all you have to be able to do once you've got the line drawn is cut the stone, which they were already doing, and everybody learns to cut stone. It's one of the first things you learn to do as an ancient uh, person. All they had to do was cut the stones, polish them, and then lift them into place. Well, how do you lift a stone that's several hundred tons into place? You use ropes and pulleys and levers. And all you need, to, all you need in order to build ropes and pulleys and levers is grass, sticks, and a lot of patience, and some rocks to use as knives if you don't have metal. Mm -hmm. But it can all be done, and it was all done. And the genius and the persistence and the artistry is astonishing. And the thing that I hate about the ancient aliens theory 
is that it assumes that that basic level of human ingenuity is so advanced that only technological people could do it. It assumes that we are that much smarter than our predecessors when the reality is actually very, very much the opposite. We are incredibly stupid compared to our predecessors. It does not take a lot of brains to use a precision manufactured square and a power saw and an electric winch that you got from the hardware store. It doesn't take a lot of brains to use machines that other people invented and built for you. It takes a lot of brains and a lot of creativity to invent new ways of doing things, to create the tools on the spot, and this is something that they would do. The craftsmen were not the people who knew how to use the tools. They were also until you get into metallurgy, the craftsmen always made their own tools. Once you get into metallurgy, you start to get a bit of a sharper division of labor because blacksmithing is a very specific kind of skill set. But blacksmiths make all their own tools, too. Mm -hmm. So there was still a big, squishy crossover between the tool user and the tool maker. Um, it's not really until you get into the industrial age, and in fact the late industrial age, where tools are something that someone makes and someone else uses. And it does not take a lot of brains or creativity to use a tool that someone else made. The ancients were smarter than us. Not necessarily because they had more horsepower running around between their ears, but because if they weren't smarter than us, they would have died out. They were forced to use every last bit of intelligence they had in order to survive and make cool stuff. We are not forced to use a tenth of our intelligence. And I'm not talking about humans only use 10% of their brains. Of course, that's bullshit. We use all of our brains all the time because that's what the brain does. But we don't do a fraction of what we're capable of because we don't have to. Life is easier this way. But we are a lot less impressive as individuals because of it. Thank you very much for the question, Kane, And I'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.